Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. As Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem on the very first Palm Sunday, his disciples declare a joyous and most essential truth for us to remember on this Palm Sunday of 2020. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. I hope this truth lifts our focus above the uncertainty and the worry about the coronavirus and the reality of King Jesus alive and living among us right now encourages us as we face these challenging times. The days in which we are living continue to be filled with the stress of the unknown. The normal way of life, as we used to call it, has been replaced by this strange and eerie version. And along with it, fear has arrived, carrying with it a rather large suitcase apparently planning an extended stay. And all of us wonder what is happening in our world. And the shouts of Jesus' disciples so many years ago offer a word of hope to us in these difficult times. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. It's pouring rain outside, at least it was a few minutes ago. I I noticed it had slowed down a bit, but it looks like it's going to be raining Most of the day, there are seven of us who are in the family auditorium at the Oak Hills campus. No less than 16 feet of separation between each one of us. Where you are, Kent Carlson might be sipping coffee in his bathrobe and Cubs hat. Kenyon Middleton is perhaps watching carefully to catch me making an old guy joke he doesn't think is funny. John and Lisa Schmidt are taking care of their new baby, Benjamin Picard, so congratulations to the Schmitz. I'm not sure if Picard is after the French astronomer of a few hundred years ago or after the Star Trek captain. I fear it's after the Star Trek captain. I would encourage John uh, to schedule an appointment quickly and we can talk about that. Laudan and Zach Woodard are celebrating their new edition, Rose Hope, a wonderful Name for these days, Gus the dog is at my house wondering when I'm going to be home. My daughter's friend Maddie and her new boyfriend Joe are whipping up a breakfast scramble for Abby, Raul, and Matt. And Sarah Bubby Badger is keeping warm in Denver, Colorado and breaking her fast with a bowl of leftover vegetable soup. And here we all are, this motley crew gathered together in this strange but wonderful online service. Starting today and throughout this week, Christians all over this world will revisit the most important events in the history of this universe. Jesus' final days on earth, his sufferings, death, and resurrection, all central in God's plan to rescue and redeem humanity and all of creation from the power and curse of evil and sin and death. This is, without a doubt, the most important week in the Christian year. Jesus' final days begin on what is now called Palm Sunday. He rides into the city of Jerusalem. The road is packed with his followers. 
who are cheering for him and shouting out the messianic words of Psalm 118 and verse 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish people understood Psalm 118 to be about the one who would eventually come and rescue them from all their enemies and from all their oppressors. And so to ascribe this verse to Jesus shows that they thought he might possibly be the long-awaited Messiah and King. But, as is often the case, their perception of the Messiah and what he would do was shaped by their current circumstances and desires. And we are no different. Our perception of God is often shaped by our current circumstances and desires. We create God in our own image, as it is sometimes put. We make God the way we want him to be or need him to be or think he should be. At the time of the first Palm Sunday, the Jewish people wanted a king who will fix this mess we are in with Rome. A Messiah who will deliver us from all these Roman oppressors. Even the closest disciples who had been with Jesus for three years and heard him expound many times on the nature of God's kingdom and even heard him tell them of the sufferings he was going to face in Jerusalem, ultimately these close disciples did not get it. The Messiah they thought they wanted was better than the Messiah standing right in front of them. We've inherited this same inclination, I think. The God we think we want is better than the one standing right in front of us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The first followers of Jesus shouted this against the backdrop of a first century coronavirus known as the Roman Empire. The empire and their oppression and scare tactics hovered constantly over the lives of the Jewish people. And many who shouted on the first Palm Sunday believed Jesus was the Messiah and King who would overthrow the Romans and liberate the Jews. But ultimately, Jesus was not the Messiah or the King they expected. Jesus was not the King they had hoped for. Jesus did not do what many in the crowd wanted him to do. Jesus as Messiah and King was certainly part of God's redemptive plan for all of creation, but he was not what people wanted and not what they were looking for. Not back then, not very often since then, and not really that much now. Makes me think of Amazon. Type in whatever, almost anything you want. Order it, and it arrives in a few days, unless it's toilet paper or hand sanitizer these days. Then it won't ever arrive. Recently, we ordered a giant Connect 4 game for our backyard, and we waited for it to be delivered. And finally it came, and I opened the box, and I set it up, and it was exactly as described. And it looked just like the pictures on Amazon. And we absolutely love it. Five stars, without a doubt. So it's a bit like going to Amazon and typing in Messiah. Or king. We read the description. Look at the pictures. It all looks good. So we add it to the cart and complete the ordering process. And then we wait for it to arrive. The Israelites endured centuries of waiting. No next day delivery option in those days. After waiting all those years, the package finally arrived one night in an obscure little place called Bethlehem. The first 30 years, Jesus was eh as a king. But for the last three years of his life, he created quite a stir across Judea and Samaria. 
So here comes the king. Blessed is the king. This is what the king's going to do. Finally, life is going to be great. Open the package. Bring him out. But then the king comes and doesn't fulfill expectations. He doesn't look anything like the picture, or at least what we thought the picture was going to be. He's nothing like the description. Return him. One and a half stars. I think it is safe to say no one ever has an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ and walks away saying, he's exactly what I expected, everything I imagined him to be, precisely what I was looking for. He fits perfectly in my wonderful life. Five stars. Jesus is king and we celebrate him today on Palm Sunday. But he is a different kind of king. He is what we might call a contrarian king, a wonderfully and beautifully disruptive king. Now, I'm not here on Palm Sunday 2020 claiming to have an inerrant or complete understanding of all of what it means for Jesus to be the king of this universe or the king of the world or even the king of my life or the king of your life. But it is good for us, especially in these days of a worldwide pandemic, to pause at the beginning of this most sacred week and remember Jesus is king. And think for a bit about what he actually is like, what he actually is about, what kind of king he actually is. He is, first of all, a humble king. Jesus and his followers arrive at the northeastern edge of the city of Jerusalem and they descend the road toward the city and as they're walking down, his followers lay their coats on the back of a donkey to make a bit of a saddle. They hoist Jesus up onto the donkey and he rides down the Mount of Olives and as he's riding on this donkey, more followers praise him and lay their coats on the ground in front of him, kind of a red carpet treatment in the first century. Other gospel accounts tell us that people were waving palm branches as Jesus rode by, palms being a sign of victory for a conquering king. And they shout as he rides by, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But this king has no silk robe. This king has no gold studded crown. He rides on a donkey, not in a chariot. He does not have a castle or even a place to lay his head. He's surrounded by ordinary people, not dignitaries. And he's about to enter this important city of Jerusalem, not to conquer it, but to suffer and to die at the hands of its corrupt leaders. Jesus is a humble king, but he's also an incredibly powerful king. But his power is not like the power of this world. The whole of Jesus's life from the moment it began was, in fact, a contrast to the arrogant, ego-driven, self-centered attitude that often characterizes those who have power. Jesus, the king, is humble. He was born in a barn to a teenage girl and her carpenter husband in an obscure town called Bethlehem. He spent his first 30 years scratching out a living as a carpenter, and now he rides into Jerusalem same way, humbly. Same way he arrived into the world 33 years earlier. And all of this is intentional. Because Jesus' humility reveals God's humility. Colossians 1 says the Son is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus, the humble king, reveals then 
a humble God. It's a strange picture. Hard to get our head around. A humble God, but an incredibly powerful God. Uniquely powerful, but strangely humble. Not much like the God I found on Amazon, who either rants and raves and loves to punish, or spends his days in his celestial rocking chair, scratching his lazy cat, listening to the Bee Gees, and occasionally flashing a toothless grin. Secondly, Jesus the King is a weeping king. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Again, another stunning picture, picture of Jesus, God incarnate, weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, uh, the king, sees this important city stretched out in front of him. He knows what's going to happen to him over the next several days. He knows the deep rebellion against God in the hearts of the people and of the leaders, and he knows the long-term consequences that will follow from their rebellion. And all of this, and surely much more, pressed on Jesus' soul in the moment when he saw the city and he wept. Now, maybe I'm in the minority, but Jesus as a weeping king contradicts the calloused king I thought I was getting when I ordered him up on Amazon. And I have to say, I'm rather intrigued by a God who weeps for those who reject him. It's not weeping because their rejection makes him feel insecure. Weeping because he wants what is best for them. Now, to be sure... In the passage Brandon read a moment ago, Jesus speaks very hard truth about the judgment that will eventually come upon the city of Jerusalem and upon the people of Jerusalem. He says, the days will come when your enemies will encircle you and hem you in on every side and there will be bloodshed and suffering for the people of Jerusalem. And Jesus is here prophesying about an event that occurred roughly 40 years later, around 70 AD, when the Romans brought their military muscle and destroyed the city and virtually destroyed the temple and there was bloodshed and there was wailing and there was death. But when you take it all together, Jesus the King does not fit neatly into the either-or paradigm of merciful or just, compassionate, or malicious. As he approaches the city, Jesus is not angry. He's not pointing his finger and screaming. We are told he weeps. Again, not because of what's going to happen to him, but for those who are rejecting him because they do not know what they are doing and they do not realize what they are missing. And on this Palm Sunday, it is good for us to remember the heart of our king for the people of his world. The heart of our King for all people in His world. Christians sometimes do a terrible job of reflecting God's heart for people. The tone and the posture and the attitude of some Christians leaves one the impression that while God so loved the world, they actually loathe many in the world. The attitude of some Christians, it seems to me, leaves one the impression that while God weeps over the sins of the world, they actually like to see people suffer and, quote, get what they deserve. I know in these days of pandemic, some Christians believe the virus is God's judgment on the world and maybe the beginning of the end of the world. And maybe it is all that. I certainly don't have a clue. 
But I do know from passages like the one Brandon just read, God does not delight in human suffering. God is not trying to make it difficult for people to find him. And God is especially not an impersonal force or power. He is rather a personal being who experiences sadness and grief. He is a king who weeps. He is also a pursuing king. In verse 44, Jesus gives the reason why the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel will suffer the consequences of rejecting him. As he put it, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's a wonderful phrase. You didn't see or sense or pay attention to the time of God's coming to you. The redemption story is the story of God the King taking the initiative to come to his people and set them free. We call it incarnation. It's the Christmas story. It is the infleshing of God, or if you prefer, Jesus the King dressing himself in human flesh and coming to live among us to show us what God is actually like and show us the way to real life and to real freedom. Well, the God I get off Amazon withholds himself, maintaining six or more feet of separation from me all the time. He's disinterested, this God that lives in my mind, or this God that I sometimes order up. He's disinterested. He comes off cold sometimes. But Jesus the King took the initiative to come to us. His love, we could say, compels him to pursue us. And make himself known to us. So a pursuing king. Or personalize it. A God who wants me. And I believe in the course of our lives, throughout our lives, there are many times of God's coming to us. To borrow Luke's phrase. Not just one time. Many different ways he comes to us. And tries to get our attention. He's not a one-size-fits-all God who comes to us in one and only one way. And if we miss it, then tough luck. Jesus is rather a king who pursues us in what we could call a custom-designed way made for us. You see, he knows us. He knows how we are wired. He knows the way our particular mind works. He knows the details of our life experiences. He knows the specifics of our past. He knows exactly where we have been hurt. He knows right at the point where our inner life and soul has been damaged. He knows how we feel the world. He knows how we process the world. He is personal and he knows us intimately. So he comes to us in a way that is made for us. I have three children. They're all in their 20s. They have different personalities, different ways of seeing and feeling the world. I don't have one child with three different faces. I have three children with different faces and feelings and minds and inner worlds. And they each have a different way of processing life and the world. And I am their sinful and selfish and very broken father. But even I realize that I cannot communicate with my three children in a one-size-fits-all approach. If I actually love them and I really want to communicate with them versus just talk at them, then I will pursue them and interact with them 
in a manner that fits them so they can hear and understand. Think of all the people watching this right now. Different generations, different personalities, different ethnicities, different past experiences. You may have some of those differences represented in the room you're in right now with other people. Jesus the King does not pursue us all in exactly the same way. He does not come to us in the same way. Because we think and feel and hear and see and experience differently. So Jesus is a pursuing king who knows us intimately and he comes to us based on his knowledge of us. And our role, each of us, is to keep our eyes and our ears and our hearts open again, to borrow Luke's phrase, to recognize the time of his coming to us. Maybe an example helps. People like my children, who are in their 20s and some in their 30s and some in their 40s and some in their teens, do not think the way those of us in our 50s think. They process the world differently. And they process God and faith and Christianity differently. Let me use an example that's closer to home. Abby is our oldest daughter and middle child. She'll finish law school in about a month. I think I know Abby pretty well because I've pursued a relationship with her throughout her life. Abby has a beautiful mind. Abby has an expansive mind. She has an artistic soul. She has a passion for experiences. She feels the world very, very deeply. She senses the absurdities of life, while at the same time cares deeply for many things. Abby loves her friends. She finds hope and life and love in the community of her friends. Like many in Abby's generation, God and faith and Christianity and church are difficult for her to reconcile. There are a lot of conflicts and contradictions she can't resolve. And yet Abby's soul is haunted by sights and sounds and smells and feelings and poetry and words that she knows could only come from another world. But she can't find the magical wardrobe into that world. So she remains convinced she is indeed a spiritual being, but unsure of how to proceed with spiritual things. And I know these things because she and I have had countless discussions about these things. Love pursues. I told her I was going to say all this today. She and I have had many conversations about these things over many years. And some of those conversations have been incredibly intense. Abby is an Olympian when it comes to arguing. She's incredibly stubborn. Snarky on steroids, Abby is. She got all this from her mother, but what are you going to do? Here's the point. Abby is my daughter. She's not a religious project. And love pursues. I know Abby pretty well. I love Abby beyond words. There's no way I could describe how much I love all my children. How much I love Abby. And my love for her compels me to pursue her in a way that is consistent with what I know about her. Jesus, the King, pursues us. He pursues Abby. He pursues you.
he pursues me. He comes to us. He makes himself known to us in ways we can see and hear and experience if we are looking and listening and yearning for that other world. I like that Jesus pursues. Let me personalize. I like that Jesus pursues me. I like that Jesus wants me. That does something to deep places in my soul. It does something to deep wounds in my soul. To know that God loves me and pursues me and wants me. My job, our job, is to have the eyes and the ears to recognize him and know him when he comes to us and then respond to him, turn to him, or return to him when he comes to us. Lastly, Jesus is the king of peace. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, the king of peace. Such a haunting Word, a, a word of longing in the days we're living in today. The king of peace, the king of shalom, of flourishing, of wholeness, of goodness. Jesus is the king of peace, or we could say it this way. Jesus is the king who restores things to the way things are supposed to be. So he is a healer. So Jesus the King riding into Jerusalem, strange as this may sound, is the beginning of the end of the curse of sin and evil and death. The tide, ever so slightly, is starting to turn. Throughout his life, Jesus the King of Peace showed his power to bring peace. He did this when he healed the sick. He brought shalom into the disease and healed it. He showed his power to bring peace when he liberated the oppressed, when he forgave the sinner. He brought liberation, shalom, flourishing into the heart that was drowning in shame and in sin. He brought the power of peace when he welcomed the forgotten and the outcast and the outsider. And with all of these things and many more, he was confronting the curse that hovers over this world with his kingdom power. And he was bringing shalom where there previously had been brokenness. And so it is good for us on this day to celebrate the king of peace today, right in the face of the coronavirus right in the face of the darkness that is hovering all over this world. The darkness that is all around us these days in the most remarkable and unexpected way. Jesus is the King of Peace. Jesus is the bringer of shalom. The healer of anti-shalom. And because of this, today, right now, for those who follow him, joy actually makes sense. Hope actually makes sense. And celebration, believe it or not, actually makes sense. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you on this day scattered all over the place. And we join with your church scattered all over the world these days. Not many able to gather, but we are gathered together 
in the name and in the power and in the grace of King Jesus. And we thank you for who he actually is. For the way that he opens us up to who you actually are. And we continue to pray that we might honor him in our lives. We might return to him in the midst of these dark and challenging days. And that when you come to us, that we will recognize the time of your coming and respond. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.